seated. Recently, I came across an article in, in a Reader's Digest that is about different reading habits. And some of these habits they uh, labeled as weird, though I would suggest they're just simply different. So, for example, uh, some of these reading habits, I'll just list, list a few that, that apparently some people, when they're reading a book, they move their lips, they lip the words. And if that describes you, then you practice a sub-vocalization according uh, to the experts. Now, this might be weird, and I hope I haven't offended anyone, but apparently one habit is actually smelling books that you might read. Of course, uh, this doesn't apply to digital media, I suspect, unless you get some kind of special app that gives off that book smell on your iPad. And then there's a habit that I practice, I'll admit it, a habit of having multiple books that you're reading at one time. Maybe that's why I can hardly finish a book, because I start one, put it down, and start another. But my favorite reading habit is this one. You begin reading a book by reading the last page. In other words, you begin reading by discovering how everything is going to turn out, and then you go back. Now, Reader's Digest said this was weird. I'm not saying that it's weird. It's different. But it certainly is not my practice. That would ruin the story for me. But, believe it or not, at the University of California, San Diego, research has been done. And it has shown that for some people who spoil the story for themselves by beginning at the end, actually enjoy reading the entire story after they know the end. And that's been scientifically proven. Someone just raised their hand testifying to that very fact. And in fact, the research further shows that they not only enjoy reading, they, they find it easier to read knowing how things are going to work out and they're able to focus more on the deeper meaning of the story to gain deeper understanding. Well that's simply not my practice. I can't quite understand someone doing that but I appreciate people who do that. But there's one story however where I am so glad I know in the present day, how things are going to work out in the future. You see, there's one story I'm glad has been spoiled for me. And it's the story of salvation. And we have an example of how the story of salvation is spoiled for us by beginning at the end in our text today from 1 Peter in chapter 1. So Peter is an example of a spoiler of a great uh, story. And so let's see how Peter spoils the story for us as we look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. Notice how he begins. He begins at the end of the story of salvation. He begins in the future. 
he begins really that last day as eternity is ushered in. And Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Do you see how Peter spoils the story in the most glorious way for us, the story of salvation? He begins at the last page of salvation's story. He reminds us of that glorious end, what is waiting for God's people when they get to heaven. There is this glorious ending, this promised inheritance that is being kept safe and secure for you and me, for all those who have been born again by God through Jesus Christ and his redeeming work. That's how it's going to work out in the end. For the people of God. Isn't that great? That's the end of the story. And why would Peter be such a spoiler of the salvation story for us? We find the answer in verses 6 through 9, which really are the verses that we will focus on today. So if you have your Bibles open, read, read along as I read aloud, beginning with verse 6 of Peter chapter, 1 Peter chapter 1. Notice how he begins, in this you rejoice. In light of what I've just spoiled for you in verses 3 through 5, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And as we will spend some time reflecting on these words of Peter, having described the future, now turning to the present day, let us pray. God, our Father, thank you that indeed the story of salvation is spoiled in the sense that you have clearly revealed the glorious end of our salvation, and that is such a blessing for us as we live today in light of that future glory. Enable us to spend a few moments reflecting upon that, that you would encourage our hearts and that we might more and more experience joy. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen. So our theme today, God plans trials, God has a purpose for trials, and the result of God's purposeful, planned trials, the result is, for the believer, joy today, a present joy. So we learn several truths about trials in verse 6 as we look at 
the plan for trials. And the first thing we learn is that trials are inevitable. Have you figured that out yet? <laughs> Look at passages like Romans chapter 5, verse 35, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 36, and James chapter 1 and verse 2. And in those scriptures, we are told that God's people face trials, various kinds of trials. So James 1 verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Jesus spoke about trials and suffering in Matthew chapter 5 and Luke chapter 6. And now Peter testifies to the reality of the believer facing trials when he says in verse 6, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, it's always important for us to ask the question, okay, so Peter wrote this, so to whom were the original, who, to whom did he write this letter? Who were the original hearers? And we're told in chapter 1 of verse 1 that the original hearers are elect exiles of the di dispersion. And it would be tempting to think that Peter is strictly speaking to those believers in the first century that were scattered because of persecution all throughout the known world at that time. And that did happen, but Peter's point and the identity of the elect exiles here really refers to something much broader than just simply someone physically being dispersed or exiled to a foreign land. It really refers to spiritual exile. It really refers to every elect person of God. In other words, what Peter is saying here, I write this to elect exiles. I write this to believers who are living in a foreign land, this earthly existence, who are on a journey in this foreign land. And as they journey, they are facing all various kinds of trials as they journey to their true home, which is heaven itself. And did you pick this up in the passage that J.C. read earlier from Isaiah chapter 35? God making a way in the wilderness for his people to pass in safety and joy to the promised land, to our true home, Zion, heaven. Peter's writing to you and me as much as he was writing to the believers in his days. We are elect, elect exiles. And Peter tells us that elect exiles on their journey home will face various trials. On the way, we may face persecution. On the way, we may face a struggle with sin. On the way, we may encounter spiritual dryness. On the way, we may deal with complacency. On the way, we may have a conflict. On the way, we may suffer the consequences of living in this fallen world. On the way, we may get sick. On the way, we may suffer the death of a loved one. On the way, we will encounter various trials. The you in verse 6 is you and me. We are the elect exiles. We're on a journey and we're facing various trials. Now the second thing we learn about trials is this. That, and I hate to break this news to you. Trials are lifelong. And so Peter writes, now for a little while. 
And we, again, we, we may be tempted to think, oh good, just a little bit of my, my earthly existence is going to be encumbered by trials, right? Well, sorry, that's not the way it goes. That, that's not what Peter is saying. A little while encompasses the whole of one's earthly existence from birth until physical death. That's the truth of the matter. And what Peter is saying here is that these various trials, we will encounter the span of our total earthly existence. But yet, a little while will seem like a very little while once we reach glory and look back on our earthly existence. You see, we, we pick up this in passages like 2 Corinthians 4.17 where Paul says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now this is what I want you to do. Think about your life your life story, your storyline up to this point. And as you look back, don't you see all kinds of various trials that's part of your story? Don't you? And what Peter is saying, okay, as you're considering the storyline that God has written for you, and as you look to the future for that which is yet to come, know that various trials will be there as well. That's reality on this journey as elect exiles. And the third thing we learn about trials is they're planned. Peter writes, if necessary, and the NIV is translated, had to. And so I think this is not suggesting that, that trials are a possibility. I think what Peter is saying here and what certainly the NIV picks up, I think, very clearly, is that trials are a necessary part of God's plan for each one of us. Trials are necessarily to be written into the life story that God has for each one of us. Now, this is not to say that trials are good. They're not. This is not to say that trials are enjoyable and happy. They're not. They're unpleasant and they're sad. But it is to say that trials are a necessary part of God's plan for each one of his children as they journey to heaven. Later in 1 Peter we read this in chapter 4 and verse 19. Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So we might paraphrase then verse 6 as this. Now in this earthly life, it is necessary for you and me to be grieved by various trials, for God has ordained them to be part of the storyline he has written for our life's journey to heaven. That is the truth of what Peter is teaching us thus far. And so why would Peter begin the story of salvation at the end? It is because God has planned various trials all along the way of our life's journey. And we need to know the end in order not to despair in the present day. 
God plans trials, and if God plans trials, there's a purpose for them. Would you agree with that? We find the purpose in verse 7. The purpose is to test and, and, and approve that our faith is genuine. Now, we know of a famous test by God of one of his elect exiles, we can say. Remember Genesis chapter 22 with Abraham, where God tests Abraham's faith by saying, Abraham, go and sacrifice your your son, your one and only son, Isaac, to me. And Abraham passed the test, didn't he? So God has a track record of testing the faith of his children. And he tested Abraham's faith, and he has tested and will test our faith as well. I saw a documentary, documentary on the, the production of a, a high-quality uh, samurai sword. And the process is really unique because the, the, the metallurgist takes the raw material and he heats up that raw material. And then it goes through a series of heating up, pounding the metal, folding it over, pounding it again, cooling it down heating it up, and that is repeated eight to ten times. And the result of all of this heat and pounding and tempering is a very strong, tempered, still sword that will hold an edge and will be useful as a sword. And I suggest to you that that's very much depicting what God is doing in purposing trials for you and for me. Peter's point in verse 7 is this, when he, when he writes, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire. When he writes that, his point is not to suggest that faith is precious. Faith is precious, right? But that's not Peter's point. It is not faith that is precious, but it is that which God uses to test and prove our faith is genuine. That is what is precious. And what Peter is saying here is these trials that God has planned in our lives are a tool that are precious because that tool, that trial, tests our faith and refines us and strengthens our faith and makes us pure as a Christian. That's what's precious. And when you think about it in these terms, then a, a, a hardship can be viewed as precious. Death can be viewed as precious. Sickness can be viewed as precious. A struggle can be viewed as precious. For it is a tool in God's hand to strengthen our faith and to refine us. As a metallurgist would take gold and heat it up to purify it, so God heats us up (laughs) through these trials and purifies us. And Isaiah picks this up in 48, chapter 48, verse 10. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. So are you in the furnace of affliction today? Are some of you in the midst of a pretty hot trial? 
the human response, maybe the natural response is to despair, is to try to run from it, to try to beseech God to take it away from you. But if we understand what Peter is saying here, we might actually see that furnace of affliction as a precious, let me just stop and say, this is really hard for me to say. It is very difficult to stand before you, especially if you are suffering a desperate trial, and say that something that makes you suffer is a precious tool in God's hands. That is hard for me to say to you. That is hard for me to think in terms of myself. But brothers and sisters, this is the truth of Scripture. And if we don't see the furnace of God's affliction as a precious tool in his hand to, per, to refine us and to strengthen our faith, then we really don't have much hope. And we will not have any joy in this life. Why is God so focused on testing our faith and refining us? Have you ever asked that question? He's very good at it. And he's very persistent at it. He doesn't let a day go by that he hasn't tested my faith and, try and refined me. What's he doing? And why is he doing it? Well, I'll tell you why he does it. We find the answer in verse 5. Go back to verse 5 and we read, Who by God's After Peter has said the wonderful, glorious future salvation that we will inherit in verses 3 through 5, he says in verse 5, or 3 through 4 rather, he says in verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed. You see, our hope of, of actually possessing this promised inheritance that Peter talks about in verses 3 through 4 is protected by God powerfully sustaining our faith because genuine faith and only genuine faith will result in our actually possessing that full salvation that inheritance that we've been promised in heaven and God is so determined that we would persevere God is so determined that our faith would be genuine that we would pass, uh, possess that full salvation that he has ordained trials in our life to test our faith, to refine us, to strengthen our faith that we would possess the full salvation in the future. Do you get what Peter's doing here? God means business when he says you will receive this inheritance and he is strengthening our faith today, persevering us that that would in reality be the case. And there's a second reason the other part of this answer, why is God so fixated in the glorious sense of that to refine us and to test our faith, we find in verse 7, where verse 7 refers to the second coming of Christ, the revelation of Christ, and what we find there is that actually when we get to heaven and because of God's grace and mercy, we will not only receive this full salvation, this 
this inheritance, but we will also share in the praise and glory and honor of Christ, that reward. And I have a difficult time really comprehending that. But that is what Peter is saying here. And so, brothers and sisters, remember that, that God is all about our possessing that inheritance and sharing in the glory of Christ. And that is his purpose for these trials that he has planned in our life today. And indeed, if we catch what Peter is saying here, then we will be able to view every trial as a precious instrument in God's hand that I will one day possess that inheritance and share in the glory of Christ. Well, knowing how things turn out really does make it easier for some people to read a story. But knowing how things turn out makes it really joyful for all of us as we live in the present the storyline that God has written for each one of us, anticipating that day of full salvation. Peter began in verse 6 with this, this simple little phrase, in this you rejoice. Clearly, his meaning of in this is the end of the story of our future salvation, all of that that he's described in verses 3 through 4. And knowing the end of the story of salvation enables us, this is what Peter means, enables us to have joy today. That is to have joy in the present, even as we face various trials. And, and this present day focus, Peter having in verses 3 through 4, cast our eyes upon the future. Now in 6 through 9, our eyes are in the present. This present day focus is shown in verse 8. Here Peter gives us, uh, two parallel statements, and I'll just simply summarize them as you read them for yourself in verse 8, where Peter basically says this, the object of the believer's love is one they have not seen, Christ who is in heaven. And the cause of their joy is one whom they trust, though they have not seen. Again, Christ ascended in heaven. And Peter's point with this parallelism is to emphasize the fact that he, when he talks about in this you rejoice, that he's talking about not a joy that we will have in heaven and will truly have joy in heaven. He's talking about joy that we have today in the present on this journey as our life story is unfolding and as we are progressing towards heaven and as we are facing various kinds of trials we are to have joy. And knowing the end of the story makes all the difference for us. Because as our heads are down and we are under these various trials, we know how things are going to turn out. And Peter says that really is the reason we are able to have joy today. And then Peter says this joy is inexpressible and filled with glory. And why is this joy inexpressible? It is not that we can't explain joy, but it's inexpressible in that the joy that Peter is talking about is not from a human source, but from a divine source. In other words, it is joy that God works 
in us. And as such, we are able to have confidence in God and this future plan that he has for us in the midst of trials and have joy. This is how one commentator put it. It is thus this present joy lit up by the light of eternity and allows the Christian to be sure of the future salvation with its attendant glory despite the present circumstances that militate against such confidence. Now that's a mouthful and you may not understand a word I just said. I'm not so sure I do. But I think what this, this writer is saying is this. Joy is not rooted in our circumstances. Joy transcends our circumstances. Joy is rooted in the heavenly realities. Joy is from Jesus himself. And in that sense, we have confidence and joy in the midst of our life's journey facing trials. And this note of confidence is strengthened by the good news of verse 9 which really speaks about this outcome of our future salvation, that it's guaranteed, and it's guaranteed to those who are suffering in God's school of affliction. And surely, with such a confidence and such a guarantee of a future salvation, and knowing that and resting in that and believing that means that we have joy today because we know how the story is going to end. Think about that. Think about what you're suffering with today. Think about a trial that is upon you today. And think about what God promises you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about what you will enjoy and have in heaven. Think about the inheritance that is kept safe for you and for me. Think about that one day we will, again, I just can't fathom this, but one day we will share in the glory and praise and honor of Christ. It's all His. He only has a right to it, but he shares it with us. That's our destiny. That's our future. That's the end of the story. And that gives us great confidence, and that gives us great boldness. That roots our joy in these heavenly realities, this future salvation we have in Christ Jesus. Joy transcends personal circumstances. And the very last verse of Isaiah chapter 35 that, that was read earlier just so beautifully summarizes this for us. As there in Isaiah, God is encouraging his people, I am making a road straight to heaven for you, although it may not seem all that straight to you. And it's a road that is safe. Nothing's going to ultimately harm you on that road. You may get sidetracked a little bit, and you may be hindered, you may get a flat tire, but yet you will reach the end, you will reach heaven. And then we read this, and, and I just love this, and the ransom of the Lord shall return. 
doesn't say the ransom of the Lord might return, hopefully will return, but shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness with joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. That describes the end of the story. And Isaiah 35.10 is a verse that, that we can have in our hearts and minds to remember as we are going through a trial. That we might have joy in the midst of that trial because we know the end of the story. And it's a glorious end. Well, one episode of my life's journey, believe it or not, is a, a meal that I had in... Oh, probably 1984 or 5. Ray and I were up in the Boston area. Going to, I was going to seminary. And we had some friends that came in to visit us that, uh, that had a whole lot more money than poor seminary students had. And so they wanted to uh, give us a treat. So we went down into Boston and ate at one of the, one of the famous restaurants in, in Boston. Jimmy Harborside Restaurant. And we had to wait two hours to get in, but it was worth every minute of the wait. And so we go in, we're seated, and we're looking at the menu, and one of the waiters is walking around with a platter of um, scallops that have been sautéed in butter and garlic. And he puts one of these really large butter-soaked scallops on my plate, and I began eating that scallop, and it's probably one of the best things I've ever eaten in my life. Do you remember that, Renee? And I thought to myself, wow, if this little freebie, although I'm sure it wasn't free, if this little appetizer is any foretaste of what this halibut is going to taste like that I ordered, I am in for a treat. A foretaste of something better. See, I think that's what Peter's telling us here. That the joy that we have today is a foretaste of something better. So as, as we, you know, God has written a story, story of salvation. And part of that big story of salvation, he's written our storyline in there. And in that storyline that God has written, he has just crammed it full of various trials. But he has a purpose for those various trials, doesn't he? And that is to test and prove that our faith is genuine, that we would possess the full salvation, that inheritance, and share in the glory of Christ. And these various trials... result in an opportunity for us to have joy. In other words, think of various trials in your life resulting in receiving a scallop. A foretaste of something better. Think of the various trials in your life as an opportunity to have that joy that is rooted in heaven itself as a foretaste of the complete and full joy that we will have unhindered 
in heaven. You see, God writes trials into our storyline. And his purpose is that we would have the full salvation in the future that has been promised. But also part of that story is this, that in the midst of the greatest trial and lesser trials, any trial, his people will have joy today, joy in the present. And for so many people, joy in the present seems like a fleeting thing. But God's word says it is the norm for you and me. We know the end of the story. Now let's live joyfully in light of it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your saving work. We thank you, O oh God, for the fact that you do promise us an inexpressible joy today and even more in the future. We acknowledge, O oh God, that we struggle as these trials bear down on us, but our prayer is, O oh God, that you would be merciful and remind us of the end of the story that we might live today in the midst of trials experiencing true joy a joy that is rooted in the saving work of Christ so father we ask you to bless us and guide us and enable us to be joyful in Christ's name amen